inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Glass It Grows Part 2. Welcome to another episode of Radio Cade, in which my guest uh, today is Randy Scott, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Novaman and also partner at HealthQuest Capital. Welcome, Randy. Thanks, Richard. So uh, listeners who have been with us for a while uh, will remember that we did a show with David Greenspan called Glass It Grows. Um, it was a technology uh, invented or discovered by Larry Hench, who is a material science researcher at the University of Florida back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and there have been various applications of that. But uh, So uh, David Greenspan talked about one application, and um, Randy, you are involved with another one. So before we get into anything else, for or maybe our listeners who didn't catch the David Greenspan episode, if we could go back over what was it that Larry Hinch discovered, um, kind of in real simple terms, and then maybe just a little bit about uh, why why is there more than one way to use this core technology? Yeah, sure. So the material that Larry Hinch invented was called bioactive glass, or just bioglass for short. And the the thing that makes this different than regular glass is we think of regular glass as something that is sort of permanent and non-reactive and what have you. Bioactive glass is different in that it reacts in the presence of anything that's aqueous, including body fluids. And it uh, doesn't uh, it doesn't stay permanent like window glass or you know something you drink a beverage out of or whatever. Uh, it actually reacts and it releases calcium and phosphorus and some other things into the environment around it. And then it actually attracts those things back to itself and it forms a crystal structure that is essentially the same as what bones and teeth are made out of in the body. And so you could imagine if this process takes place inside the body, then the resulting crystals that form to the body just looks like it's part of the body. And that's what made bioglass uh, unique was that once it got put in the body and it went through this reaction, which happens very quickly, then the body did not distinguish between its own tissue and this new material. So it became the first material that was uh, not just invisible, but was actually recognized by the body as this is part of myself. Interesting. So when when Larry Hench developed this, did he right away know that there are going to be multiple ways in which this could be used? Or, you know, at what point uh, did did Larry or other people say, hey, this can be used for a lot of different things? Because there, there are several different applications. Where When did that aha moment come in terms of application of the technology? Yeah, and that actually did come later. So when Larry first uh, kind of started working on this, he was trying to solve the problem of how can we make new bones to put into the body. So replacing whole femurs or whatever, right? You know, whole bones. And, uh, and it was all born out of a conversation that I think David referenced in his uh, interview with uh, 
a Vietnam uh, War general that uh, Larry met on a bus and said about all these you know soldiers that were having landmine uh, victims of landmines and that kind of thing. And so uh, that was the problem he set out to solve because you can't just put a piece of metal in there or a piece of plastic in the body or whatever in that kind of a uh, large piece and expect it to be successful residing in the body for a long time. Didn't really work out for that very well, though, because glasses at the end of the day, one of the things we all know about glasses, it breaks easily. So you put it in a load bearing large situation like that, it's going to break eventually. But uh, somewhere later down the road, some other researchers also at University of Florida got the idea of what if we ground this up and to you know, just kind of granules, think like salt or sugar or something like that, and could we put it into bony defects and have those uh, have the, the material convert in such a way that the body would then heal around it as if they were bone chips or something that the body might normally remodel into new healthy bone. And sure enough, that worked. Uh, and so that really became the first viable commercial application for it. And then uh, somewhere later down the road, a researcher at the University of Maryland who had done just some animal studies for uh, Dave Greenspan and, and Larry Hinch and, and some of the other folks that were doing some work in the area, he got to think he was a dentist by training, although he was to sort of pay his bills or whatever, he was running animal studies. And he got to thinking, well, you know, teeth get these tiny little defects in them. And I wonder if we ground it up instead of being, you know, the size of a salt crystal or a sugar crystal, what if we ground it up into super fine powder and we put it into those defects somehow, would it cause the teeth to also kind of regenerate themselves or heal or whatever? And, and so he experimented with that. And Sure enough, it did work, um, and uh, had some. There were some other challenges that came to using it in that way, but conceptually, it did work in the laboratory at least. And uh, that was more or less, like, I think, where I came into the story, which was thinking about the uh, the kind of dental applications, and in particular, thinking about you know incorporating this into toothpaste and. Uh, how might it improve the performance of toothpaste, given that one of the things we want our toothpaste to do is to, whatever, you know, prevent us from getting getting cavities or even better, fill the cavity that's already happened and these kinds of things. Um, so, Randy, so you uh, said that this professor is the one who thought it might apply to, to teeth. And at that point, you sort of got in the mix. And you've had since then a, a distinguished career in sort of identifying companies and helping entrepreneurs. So... With all that you've learned now, you know, as you you started Novaman, kind of walk us through what were some of the first things you had to figure out as you've got this this technology that you believe works and believe has an application. And what was the first thing that you did? Did you did you call up your parents and say I'm rich? Uh, you know, hey, let's uh, I'm buying you a house, a car. I've got it all figured out. Or what are what are kind of the first initial steps you took? And then if you can sort of summarize, what were those early years like in terms of of getting a good idea into the marketplace and starting to grow that? Yeah. So the the key on any of these things is to fall out of love with the science and instead try and understand the economic model that makes whatever the invention is or whatever relevant. 
and uh, and that that's one of the pitfalls I think that a lot of inventors and especially I would say academic inventors kind of fall into because they're scientists by nature, and so they love the beauty or the elegance of the science. And I would say the early folks with uh, with what became Novamin with the bioactive glass, I had you know some of those same kind of uh, uh, challenges of just trying to set the science and the beauty of the science aside and think about the economic part. So, um, you know, in our case, it was figuring out that, okay, the, the really the only way this was going to make a difference to the population as a whole, but also to the business world, was if we could figure out a way to incorporate it into something like toothpaste, where you could use large volumes and it would touch lots of people. And uh, so we, you know, kind of stopped spending time and energy and money on, on the science of the Nova men so much and started more figuring out on how to solve the problems of using this in a toothpaste formula and have it feel right and taste right and not go bad on the shelf and all those kinds of things. But anyway, that, to come back to your question for you know entrepreneurs, uh, one of the biggest m- mistakes or whatever shortcomings that I see as a venture capitalist is that they are completely in love with the science and they're not yet in love with the economic model because you know at the end of the day investors like VCs want to invest in businesses not in science or in ideas interesting Let's, we're going to come back to that I'm, I'm i'm sort of fascinated by the that initial stage and then you know even after that sort of how do you get to the the next stage of attracting serious capital and getting it into big markets. But let's let's circle back and talk a little bit about you, uh, Randy, sort of what were you, let, let's go back to pre-success Randy, right? Let's go, <laughs> <laughs> what were what were you like um, as a kid? Did you already, uh, were you the sort of, the, were you four years old and you had the best uh, damn lemonade stand on the block, uh, outselling all your competitors or what, at, at what point did you figure out you had some sort of skill or attraction to business or like, you know, making things work, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I was a, uh, I guess kind of a business junkie actually as a kid in that I was always inventing fictional businesses that I was running. Uh, I wasn't so good at the follow through maybe of, of wasn't that Enron? <laughs> Fortunately, not where that were you, where were you in 1980s in tech? Okay. Right. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, I would just uh, whatever you know. One one week I'd be uh, uh, you know I'd have my own newspaper, and the next week I'd have my own uh, you know boat dealership or something. I, you know, I just kind of each week I kind of invented a new business idea in my head. And what age are we talking about roughly? Uh, this would be pretty young. I mean, this would be elementary, oh, okay. middle school right. kind of ages. Uh, and so I was always sort of daydreaming around these types of things. But then that Series A round for the boat never took never off in the first grade. <laughs> Darn VCs! And so, what were you? Uh, what were you like in high school? Or did you join like the Junior Achievement or those sort of business type clubs? Or what were you drawn to at that age? Yeah, it was on, well in high school. I finally actually started paying a little bit of attention in class, which helped some later. So I actually got into college and that kind of stuff. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, I was the uh, editor of the newspaper. I was editor of the yearbook. I, uh, uh, you know, I guess I was kind of a natural leader, you know, a couple of clubs. If I got in a club, I usually ended up being the president of the club or something like that, not by design necessarily. But I think I'm, by nature, you know, I'm pretty good at figuring out what needs to be done and then just going off and doing it as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, waiting for instructions and instructions. 
I think that's uh, one in the context of a club or something like that in high school that almost automatically makes you a leader because most of the people aren't dare to do anything other than socialize, I guess. Uh, but it's also probably the traits of a good entrepreneur. So any any of this sort of genetic or from family background, do you have a long line of successful sort of business types in your family? Or what did, what did your folks do, for instance? Sure, yeah. So my dad was very much an entrepreneur. Both of my parents were small business people. My, my mom. My mom had a store uh, that she started from scratch that was you know successful in the little town we were in. Uh, but then my dad was more of the sort of prototypical entrepreneur, which was you know every couple of years it was a different business. Sometimes they would not do very well, and maybe we'd have to move into a smaller house or something like that. Or and then of course something would do really well, and we'd have new cars and all that kind of stuff for a year or two. Uh, and he was very active in the uh, kind of the environmental sort of stuff, which is interesting because you don't think about that so much back in the, say, the 70s or even late 60s. But he was in, uh, he invented a device for recycling uh, industrial wastewater, for example, that was installed in the Maxwell House coffee plant up in Jacksonville. I remember as a kid, we always had to have Maxwell House coffee in the in the household, which became awkward when my first job out of college was with Folgers Coffee. But, uh, <laughs> uh, somehow my parents didn't disown me despite that. Uh, but he was also into paper recycling. He built the, the first municipal waste to energy plant in the United States up in Ohio. So uh, yeah, he was always doing something. I also built a lobster processing plant in Bailey's, so there was random stuff built in you know, in between all the other stuff too. So it, it sounds like you were not you were you were kind of grew up in an environment where taking risk or sort of that sort of was not at least not strange to you. I don't know if it was pleasant, but it was not strange. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, the the strange thing, if anything, was I got out of school and I went to work for Procter and Gamble, which was this big you know Fortune fifteen company or whatever. And I think that was weird to my parents because they sort of just didn't really understand the idea that you were going to go work for a big company where you're expected to work for your whole career and whatever. Of course, I didn't work there for my whole career, obviously, but uh, uh, that was a bigger adjustment than the idea of yeah, starting a business and taking the kind of risk and all. And if I remember correctly, you, you had a stint in the Caribbean with a, a distributorship, a beverage distributor, is that correct? Uh-huh. Yeah, close, yeah. So uh, um, after P&G, I worked for a brief time with Lens Crafters when it was a startup and left with one of the founders there. And we went down to Grenada, where you spent some time, mm-hmm. Richard, also. Uh, Might have even overlapped at the same time. I'm not sure if we figured that out. But uh, and went down to Grenada you know, a few years after the American invasion with the idea that we would um, help, uh, you know, the, do the patriotic thing and help them uh, build their economy and uh, have a little fun at the same time. And we went down with the intention of buying a uh, rum distillery that was for sale down there. And uh, we actually got outbid on the distillery by some British rock star. I don't actually remember who it was. And uh, so we just bought a bottle of the local rum at the store and went to the beach to drown our sorrows before flying out the next morning. And we cracked open the bottle and we thought, wow, this stuff tastes better than anything we could have made ourselves anyway. So the next day we delayed our flight. We went and we met with the, uh, the old family that owned the distillery and it had been there for you know, 100 years or 200 years, I have no idea, and uh, got the rights to it. And we kind of created a new brand called Westerhall Plantation Rum. And uh, it was going to be the first super premium rum in the U.S. It's kind of mid-80s and yeah, started importing it. And 
Uh, then I immediately went to my then girlfriend, now wife, and told her that we were going to be multimillionaires because I only needed a half a percent of the U.S. rum <laughs> market to be rich. That's uh, the oldest line in the book, right? I know, and I get, every guy uses that. <laughs> I get reminded of it every day almost. didn't work out, but whatever. So it seems like our, our careers have had similar trajectories. We've done a lot of really different things, which means either we're really good at a lot of stuff or we're good at nothing. we got to <laughs> yeah, keep right. finding a new job. So um, that's, A little ADHD, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's come back to Novaman. And um, and I remember you telling me a story that, that I still tell people about what it's like to build a, a, a new company, a small company, and you're starting to take on more employees. And you told me the story of how when you first started, you thought it was sort of your duty to share every jot and jittle of information with all of your employees. You wanted to be transparent, let them know what was going on. And finally, at one point, one of them came to you and said, Randy, stop. This is exhausting to know, you know, every every twist and turn in the company's history. And then that's when you learned, you know, maybe some things I need to keep to myself for a while mm-hmm. um, as, as the CEO and founder. Can you describe a little bit what that's like after you sort of passed through that initial, you know, valley of death in terms of you've got your initial financing, you're trying to grow the company to the next stage, but you still got a ways to go before you've developed a, you know, company DNA or a, a culture within that. What's what's that like? Yeah, one of the things that that particular episode uh, taught me was that not everybody is geared to ride the roller coaster of a startup. And, uh, you know, until a company gets to be, I don't know, I would say maybe, you know, 20 or $30 million in revenue or something like that, uh, the companies are very sensitive to any kind of little event becoming or feeling at least like an ex- existential crisis. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one customer bailing out on you can be fatal uh, in, in a lot of cases or whatever. So every piece of bad news tends to create a bad day and every piece of good news creates a giddy day and so you really do end up with this you know big roller coaster ride and you have to be able to uh, kind of control that emotion a bit if you will and not everybody can do that and you know if you're building a company you're going to have to hire people that are good at being in a startup and people that maybe aren't good at being in a startup but you need them anyway and so uh, you have to manage them differently, and you have to recognize that they're not like you. They don't necessarily feed off of that roller coaster. They actually get beat down by that roller coaster. Now, Novamin had a successful exit, right? It's, it did well. Yeah, yeah. Does having taken part in that sort of life cycle of, of starting the company and exiting successfully, uh, I imagine that helps you in your current job, right, where you're trying to pick winners and losers, you're evaluating companies every day, or at least every week, I imagine, and you're trying to decide where is the best place to put your fund's money. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you recognize yourself in some of these business owners that you talk to? And if you could develop that a little bit and tell me, you know, what what are you looking for without giving away your trade secrets, so I don't start <laughs> a fund of my own, right? Um, what kind of what are the basic core elements that you're looking for? Or you think to yourself, this this could be a good deal, and and conversely, what are sort of the red flags where if you see them, it's like, check, please, you know, <laughs> I'm done with this conversation. Yeah, right. Um, so I definitely do see, you know, myself and sort of the Novaman situation and a lot of the companies that that we look at. So uh, in that sense, it definitely uh, plays into how I think about companies. I think that, uh, yeah, a, a couple of things that, that we look for. 
uh, first off is, uh, you know, if I think about the Novamen experience, for example, one of the things that I think really worked for us in terms of being able to exit successfully was we had a technology that was going to be potentially very valuable to a, um, a relatively short list of, uh, of existing players in the space. So it was kind of an oligopoly, if you will, of you know, kind of four or five major toothpaste companies. And we knew more or less from the beginning that we were going to have to get one of them to buy the company. And uh, But we also knew that we could create conditions where all of them could look at it as a real potential game changer, both up and down meaning it could damage their business or really help their business, and that would make it sort of irresistible, we believe, to get one of them to come in and buy, which is exactly what happened when GlaxoSmithKline bought it against bids from uh, Procter & Gamble and Unilever and others. And so, um, you know, we'd love to find those kind of situations because as investors, ultimately, just investing in a business that's even successful and grows but if it remains private and all that, it's it's very difficult for us to then create returns for our investors, which are you know pension funds and that kind of stuff, because we have to be able to exit our investment typically in three to five years for the economics of the whole situation to work out. Mm-hmm. And that means that there has to be you know, an M&A event. Somebody has to buy the company or there has to be an IPO or something like that. And if you look at it, the number IPOs are sexy, but there really are, aren't very many IPOs relative to the number of venture investments that get made. So it's going to have to be this M&A thing in most cases. So we spent a lot of time looking at that back end of the deal coming into it. Um, and then I'd say, you know, it's something that uh, that is the kind of the quick turnoff is the entrepreneur that's uh, in it for or the CEO, because it's not always the the original founder, but uh, that's in it for their deal. And so if they start negotiating their own deal before you've even made the commitment to invest, then you know pretty much they've got the wrong mindset for this and it's not going to be a pleasant relationship and that one will end it, end it pretty quick. So that sounds like the, the ones you're looking for the, are the ones are really ready to, to let it go. Negotiate a price and, and walk away from it or – or is there something else there that, that I'm missing? Well, you say was, negotiate their deal. What it? What exactly I mean, negotiate mean? their personal deal. Like, you know, they're focused on their salary and their I, equity I and okay. all that kind of stuff at the early stages. You know, we we are looking for you know the CEOs and the entrepreneurs that you know their first priority is the success of the company. The company. Okay, uh, and that ideally believe that whatever they're doing is actually important to the world, even if they didn't make or nobody made money on it. That it's still somehow important to the world. Yeah, you know, we are we're focus exclusively on healthcare for a reason because, you know, we're not just trying to come up with the next sort of fun, entertaining tchotchke or something like that. Uh, we're, you know, doing all this work so that we can also have some residual benefits or, you know, additional benefits mm-hmm. beyond the, the profits that are made. So, Randy, I usually offer all of my guests an opportunity to sort of uh, dispense wise, sage advice. So, uh, if you want to end right here, we can. But uh, let's. Um, <laughs> if if you were if you saw you know a, a young Randy Scott, uh, and there are plenty of those in Gainesville, sort of you know the type, right? We have both seen them. Yeah, they, yeah. They've got a great idea. They're they're full of enthusiasm. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're sleeping on somebody's couch or somebody's floor, and and they are convinced they're going to make it. Um, uh, and, and you have given advice to those folks, but what do you tell them? Uh, what, what are the, you know, the three things you say, hey, here's what you really need to be doing now. And then are there things you say, and here are the things you need to quit doing? 
how do those conversations go with with young, sort of young entrepreneurs uh, in Gainesville or, or anywhere in where you deal? Some of them are things we've already talked about. Hey, you know, you've got to focus on the you know how is this going to be a business as opposed to uh, you know this is great science or great idea that needs a home. Uh, so you know, really getting them to understand what I what I describe to them frequently as follow the money. Uh, and in fact, I do a little kind of uh, Jerry Maguire riff sometimes off of that that you may have seen before. But uh, you know, it's really about following the money. And if you can follow the money all the way from you know both ends of the entire business chain, and you understand everybody that has to touch the product, touch an element of the product, pay for the product, sell the product, all that kind of stuff, and understand everybody's economic motivation in the deal. And after thoroughly understanding that, then you're going to be able to understand your place in that ecosystem, if you will. And a lot of things, I think, will come into focus uh, at that point once you do that exercise. And it's amazing the number of entrepreneurs that have never thought about it beyond, you know, the little sliver of the ecosystem, so to speak, that they're occupying. Uh, So I think that's the main thing. Another thing is just being patient um, and recognizing that no matter how bad things might look at a given moment in time, they can turn around 180 degrees in a very short period, you know, days or hours or whatever sometimes, uh, that it can all happen very quickly in a positive way. And you've got to just kind of keep the faith and, and stick with it. Sounds like good advice. So, Randy, thanks very much for joining me today, uh, reminding listeners uh, that the companion uh, episode to this one is Glass That Grows with David Greenspan, which we also talk about the same technology but a different application. But uh, I'm glad that you could complete the picture for us today, Randy. Great. Thanks, Richard. Great to be here. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Miles. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Heartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention located in Gainesville, Florida.